You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. Eric Hobsbawm was everybody's favorite Marxist historian. His books, especially The Age of Revolution, The Age of Capital, The Age of Empire, and The Age of Extremes, have been translated into 50 languages and have sold millions of copies. Hobsbawm, who died in 2012, was also a tireless political activist. He went to Cuba for the revolution in the 60s. He went to Italy for Eurocommunism in the 70s and 80s. And he was always active in British labor politics. Now he's the subject of a great biography. It's called Eric Hobsbawm, A Life in History. The author is Richard J. Evans. He's also an acclaimed British historian, Regis Professor of History Emeritus at Cambridge University, and author of many award-winning books, especially on the Third Reich and on Hitler. We reached him today in London. Richard Evans, welcome to the program. Hi, it's good to be with you. With Hobsbawm, the story of how he got to be a great historian is really the fascinating part. Uh, Let's start in Berlin in 1931. Hobsbawm is 15 years old and an orphan. He arrived from Vienna. Hitler was on the rise. So were the communists. And the 15-year-old declared that he was a communist. How did that happen? Well, he went to school in Berlin. Uh, but he uh, had been brought up in Vienna by his parents, uh, who were British. Um, they were German-speaking and, and English-speaking. They were bilingual. They died when he was in his early teens, and he looked around for some kind of substitute family, a sense of identity. Uh, weirdly, he found it, first of all, in the Boy Scouts. But then when he went to Berlin to live with an uncle and aunt, he was incredibly impressed, swept away by the communist movement. They had 100 seats in the National Parliament. They could throw 100,000 demonstrators onto the streets at a moment's notice. And it looked like it, the communists were the only serious opposition to Hitler and the, and the Nazis by, by that time, by the early 30s. So he read up communist literature and joined the Communist School Students Association, went on a demonstration and became he became hooked on on the idea of a small C communism. Remember, this is only 15 years after the Russian Revolution, and like many 
young people on the left. He was hugely impressed by the ideals of communism, seemed to offer a way out of the vast crisis of the Great Depression. So he and his sister then left Berlin. They were both British citizens because their father uh, had been British. They moved to London. He went to Cambridge University. And when he finished his doctoral dissertation at Cambridge in 1949, you would not have thought he would go on to write books almost every year that would end up selling millions of copies all over the world. In fact, he didn't publish his first book until he was 41. Aspiring writers take note, but how come it took him so long? Was he a victim of Cold War anti-communism? Well, to a degree, yes. I mean, he, he thought of himself as a communist intellectual from the word go, from his teens. So he never did the things that Communist Party members are supposed to, to do, like sell uh, papers on the street corner and march through the streets and all that kind of stuff. But he did write uh, a couple of books and some articles, and he was a co-founder with other historians in the party, like Christopher Hill and Edward Thompson, of uh, Past and Present, which was uh, the product of the Communist Party historians group. And in this, he wrote a couple of he, he wrote a couple of famous articles still being debated today uh, in the early 50s on uh, the reasons why so many European states got into trouble in the 17th century, wars of religion in France, uh, 30 years' war in Germany, civil war in England, and so on. And um, he also wrote uh, books, a couple of books, on the rise of, of labor, on one in particular. He wrote one uh, on the Fabian Society, who were kind of moderate socialists, was very negative about them, and that wasn't published. And then he wrote one on the rise of wage labor, which was just too left-wing for publishers at the time. So he was a historian, but he's very much a Marxist historian. And that dovetailed with, fascinatingly, with his first marriage, which he thought of as a comradely marriage to another uh, another communist, a communist woman, who um, basically got fed up with it and uh, left him for a, a, another man. And he thought for a bit, he wrote in his diaries, which I had access to, that he thought they could solve it all when, because they were communists, if mother she'd taken a lover, they could sort it out. And they couldn't, of course. So that's really why he took so long, I think, to to publish a book, it wasn't for lack of writing or lack of writing history in article form or book form. It was just because of the Cold War, I guess. 1956 is kind of a turning point. He doesn't publish his first book until a couple of years after that. 1956 is also, of course, a historic year for the world communist movement. I guess we have to talk about uh, Habsbaum in Hungary in 1956. Yeah, 1956 uh, was a real crisis for the communist movement. Uh, thousands and thousands of people left. To start with, uh, Stalin had died in 53, and his successor, Khrushchev, denounced him and denounced his crimes and his mass murders. And the communist party leadership in Britain just refused to acknowledge this. And, and um, Eric Holson became a kind of leader of a movement within the party for more democracy and getting them to acknowledge that they actually had made mistakes in the past by by, by going with Stalin uh, too much. And then in the autumn of 56, this had led in Hungary in particular to a liberal, moderate Communist Party government wanting to democratize the country. And the uh, Soviet Union, the Russians, invaded. 
And again, uh, Eric Hobsbawm tried to get the party in Britain to oppose this. So he did say, well, it was a tragic necessity, but then to prevent the rise of fascism in Hungary. But uh, he did then demand that the Soviet troops should withdraw. withdraw. So he was uh, an oppositional figure, but he never left the party because he was just too emotionally identified with it. It had become like a substitute family for him when he was an orphan uh, as a uh, as a teenager. And uh, I got hold of um, some of the you know, Secret Service reports, MI5 reports on him, and they were bugging telephones and opening his mail and so on. Though he, I don't think he's ever really uh, a threat in the way that the Cambridge spies were, Phil Burgess McLean, who was somewhat older than he was. Um, he was never in a position to do anything, really, apart from apart from write, uh, write history and write, write political stuff. And they threatened to throw him out because he's been so difficult. And he almost broke down. He said, please, you can't do it. Please don't, please don't throw me out of the party. It was kind of part of his identity. So he never left it, but we, in, in, he never resigned from it uh, until it, it, it collapsed in the early 90s. But he did leave it spiritually and politically, and it's what's really interesting is that from 56 onwards, he started writing a very different kind of history from the rise of wage labor. Uh, it was a much broader-based history. The Marxism was much more flexible. And he started looking at history's losers, at marginal people, bandits. He wrote a wonderful little book on, on, on bandit all over the world, with huge kind of reference in many different languages. In those early days... He also wrote about jazz. How did that happen? So his marriage had been dissolved. He got divorced in 1953. And he'd been a jazz fan since the 1930s. A cousin of his, Dennis Preston, was a major, eventually became a major major producer of popular music and records and so on. And um, he needed some money because he'd had to leave Cambridge and live in London. It was rather more expensive there. You know, he had sort of free free lodgings and free meals in his college in Cambridge up to 1954. And so he got a job as a jazz critic. And so he was teaching evening classes by that time. And he uh, would finish them at nine o'clock and off he'd go to Soho in, in central London to the jazz clubs and the jazz, jazz bars. So he was living amidst marginal people and deviant people, kind of alternative society, at the same time as writing about them. And I found that really rather, rather interesting, the way it kind of dovetailed. You have uh, a memorable anecdote from 1957 when a friend on vacation in southern Italy saw two men in a field and said to her husband, look, it's Eric. And she recalled (laughs) it really was Eric talking to a peasant. He was interviewing the peasant. This is pretty unusual. Historians uh, are usually seen in archives, not in fields in southern Italy talking (laughs) to peasants. That's right, yeah. Well, he learned Italian. He already spoke English, French, and, and German. He lived a lot of the time in the 50s in in France. And um, he got really interested in the fact that he got to know uh, Italian communists. A great friend of his is Giorgio Napolitano, who in the post-communist era became president of Italy. And in, in the 50s, he was uh, still, of course, on uh, Napolitano was still a, a leading member of the Communist Party in Italy. But the communist Italy were moving towards a, a more centrist, sort of more liberal kind of kind of position known as Euro-communism. And uh, Eric Hossam identified much more with that than with the hardline Stalinism of the British communist leadership. 
And he got really intrigued by the fact that in some areas, the communists had been really unusual. They, they'd had, uh, they'd, they'd latched on to peasant discontent, small farmers and so on. Uh, and um, he started writing about what he called primitive rebels. In other words, peasant movements that had not become affiliated to the Communist Party. That was his first book, Primitive Rebels. You say it remained his favorite book for the rest of his life. Italian social bandits, as you say, Sicilian mafia, Spanish anarchists, all disorganized, spontaneous, and undisciplined, not like Communist Party members, but he seemed to have liked them anyway. Exactly, yes. He, he somewhat romanticized them in a way. Uh, I think he's aware, of course, of, of the fact that bandits in rural Sicily or uh, Catania in southern Italy could also be quite brutal and ruthless towards the local population, but they also had much support from poor people who lived in, in the country. It's a bit like the Robin Hood syndrome, uh, which is recurring through history in many different countries, including in Latin America. So he, he wrote about them with a lot of sympathy, even as he was trying to categorize them as sort of primitive because they hadn't actually let, become organized in any way. The books that uh, followed the age of books, beginning with the age of revolution, were quite different from primitive rebels. They were looking at the big picture, big questions, big forces of change. What led him in that direction? Well, again, it dovetails rather neatly with his personal private life, because uh, in the beginning of the 60s, he met and fell in love with Marlena Schwartz, uh, who was uh, worked for the United Nations in Congo, and the Congo had just come back, and they got married and had two kids, and he really settled down after this very disturbed period in the in the 1950s, and that provided him with a kind of stability, and you can see his books then become much more much more synoptic, much more wide-ranging. The Age of Revolution, 1789-1848, the history of Europe, this is what he called the Dual Revolution, the French Revolution and the British Industrial Revolution. That book was commissioned by George Weidenfeld, who was a really remarkable publisher with many international connections. He had this idea of publishing a 40-volume history of civilization by different authors. And advised by some friends of his in Oxford, including Isaiah Berlin and Hugh Trevor and he, he asked Hobsbawm to, to do, the, do this. It's a very bold, bold stroke, but they all knew that read several languages. He actually read all the time. He was constantly assimilating information, and he had a broad-based approach to history because as well as being a Marxist, and his Marxism gradually kind of faded into the background in his later Read writings. He's also very heavily influenced by French social and cultural historians. Remember, he was in France for most of the 50s in the university vacations. He actually lived uh, in a menage à trois with a, uh, as they call it, with a, a couple, with a French woman and her husband for much of that time. And so these influences gave the Age of Revolution a, a really original kind of shape and form. It wasn't just about political history, about revolutions. It was also about culture, literature, the arts, about science. So it was a much broader-based kind of kind of uh, book. What do you think made those age of books so popular? The reason why they became popular, I think, and why they were, they, they were very widely read, they're full of ideas. They're full, and they're not always right, you know, but you can debate them. 
his, he was a, a writer of, of his history with ideas, not just as a kind of chronicle, but uh, all interpreting all the time. And he wrote beautifully. His mother was a novelist and a translator, and, and I think she passed some of that on to him, even though she died when he was 14. And he was a bilingual, of course. He, English was his native language just as much as German. And he had this extraordinary memory for anecdote, quotes, for illustrating his ideas and his interpretations. And finally, he gave the big picture. He had big ideas, big interpretations. All of that came together. And that's, I think, the source of his appeal. In those age of books, the age of revolution and so on, went on to sell millions of copies and he was invited all over the world to, to speak. We brought him to my school, UC Irvine, in 1981 to a, a conference on the new social history. You have a little paragraph about it in your book, I was surprised to see. He found our conference at Irvine in 1981, quote, irritating, not to say infuriating, close quote. And I think I know why. I remember we also, right after his talk, we had a panel on the new women's history, and he made some disparaging remarks about feminist history that afternoon, and there was a big blow-up about it. And in fact, I think it's kind of a general uh, weakness of uh, Hobsbawm's work that he never got very interested in women's history or, or the other new histories of the 80s and 90s. I wish you'd told me about that before I uh, published my book, John. I could have written it in. But, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, what, Marxism, uh, even if it's a very flexible kind of uh, not dogmatic Marxism of the sort that Eric Hobsbawm practiced, it's, it, it's very good on one hand for interpreting class relations, industrialization, linking the economy to other aspects of history and so on. But it has some central weaknesses too. Uh, and one of them is that it's never, Marxism has never been really able to deal with uh, women in history from, from, from a Marxist point of view. And I think Eric Hobson shared this. Women will be liberated through the revolution. So uh, feminist movement is appears as a kind of diversion from the main aim of, 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 the, uh, of, of the Marxist movement. And of course, that meant that women were marginalized in the communist movement. It's very much a men's movement, I think. You can think of some famous communist women, of course, Rosa Luxemburg, Zekin, uh, and so on. But, but, but in, in essence, it's bringing about the revolution that, that will liberate women. And there are other blank spots. I mean, he, he spent a lot of time in Latin America uh, knew a lot about it. He went to India, knew a lot about India, but he never went to Africa. He thought Africa was really unimportant in in, in world history, apart from North Africa, Algeria, and, and, and Libya, and Tunisia, and so on. But but Sub-Saharan Africa was a kind of blank on his map. And I'd say he didn't. He never really understood America. I think he found America very difficult to cope with. He enjoyed. He went there a lot. He enjoyed going there. Um, I think Irvine was probably a bit of an exception. Though, having been there myself, I can say it's a lovely place full of interesting people. But, um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, no, um, he, he found it very difficult to understand how America worked. It seemed so different. The age of revolution and the other age of books which followed were massively important works. Hobsbawm taught two generations of students and general readers across the world to see history not as one damn thing after another, but rather as a matter of theme and process, cause and effect, advance and retreat, 
developments and results. That was huge. Richard Evans' new book is Eric Hobsbawm, A Life in History. It's being published this week by Oxford. Richard Evans, thanks so much for talking with us today. Pleasure to be with you. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. Probably the easiest thing I've ever done. The medication comes in the mail and it's very easy to use. I've been able to live my normal lifestyle and I've lost 20 pounds already and I've never felt better. It changed my life. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.